So, hello. Welcome to the Rough Estimate podcast. This is our first podcast. My name is John Martin. I'm with Francis Kett. So, Francis, uh, why are we doing a podcast? We're doing a podcast on two articles we've written for Rough Estimate. The first is called Fantastical Realism, and it's a look at magical realism and how it derails fantasy and how the genres essentially split away from each other. Yeah, yeah. So two articles. Your article is about the literary genre of magical realism, and uh, mine is about sort of modern spiritualism. So they kind of fit in to each other quite nicely. But I guess we're doing a podcast because, you know, some people are, are lazy and uh, prefer to listen to things rather than read articles. We put a lot of effort into the articles and then no one reads them. So, you know, might as well put it on, on YouTube in, in sound form. Exactly, exactly. You know, you've, uh, it's just someone reading you an article, really. Um, so it's kind of more convenient. Sorry, yeah. So, uh, so, so your article, basically, it's about, if I would summarize it, it's about the conflict between fantasy and mainstream literature or, or genre literature and why the kind of traditional academy doesn't really accept fantasy, why magical realism kind of arose as an alternative to it. So uh, can you talk, firstly, can you talk about what is magical realism? So magical realism is essentially a movement which comes out of Germany, even though that's not mostly what people think about when they think of magical realism. It comes out of a movement called the New, New Objectivists. What the New Objectivists were doing is they're essentially reacting to expressionism. They were trying to present a kind of unglamorous, sort of unsentimental reality, um, but was, which was also objective. So the expressionists, the expressionists seemed too kind of abstract. It seemed too, too avant-garde and not really representing what art should be about. Obviously, it's a literary movement. So they were trying to, they were trying to imitate styles which would then influence the modernists. And this was a budding movement in Germany until um, the Reichstag and it's cracked down on under the Nazis. And it basically ceases to exist in, in Europe for a very long time. Uh, the, the way it comes back, possibly no one would have heard of it if, um, if a few authors from South America hadn't, hadn't cottoned on to the same kind of idea. Um, so it comes back in Latin America through a, through a bunch of different writers, most notably through um, Gabriel García Márquez, who wrote um, Cien Años de Soledad, The Hundred Years of Solitude. Um, and then this is a period in the, in the 60s of what's called the, the Latin American boom. And the reason it gains popularity in, in Europe is mostly because it's, it's sort of the first sort of literary taste that Europe has had of Latin American culture. So the expressionist movement in Germany. So this is kind of, so the, yeah, you mentioned the New Objectivity School. So that's the, the newer Saklakite, I think they're called. And then, so, that, so the, the expressionist is kind of German romantics about like depression, alienation. And so the, the Objectivity School, they're trying to make something more real, but they're using elements, imagined elements or surreal elements. So some, some people... So I guess Franz Kafka, who we haven't mentioned, he comes out of that, right? He kind of comes out of the, it's sometimes called absurdism, um, and it's a little bit related to surrealism, but he comes out of that German movement, I guess. There's a, there's a debate to the extent to which Kafka is, is magical realist or, or new objectivist. To be honest, I think he's kind of his own thing. He's, he's, writing, he's writing Kafka, and he's definitely influenced by the modernists and the absurdists and, and all the rest of those movements. Um, and he does inform a lot of what the magical realists go on to do. So Metamorphosis, for example, is very magical realist. It's a classic trope of magical realism is that the fantastical supernatural elements are ignored by the characters. And that's very much how it happens when he wakes up as the, as the bug, as the beetle. And he's, 
he's treated differently by his family members, but in a, in the sort of way that you treat a kind of sick, gangly relative. I think he describes himself as an invalid a lot, and um, nobody really remarks that that he has until later on in the book. In the book, no one really remarks that he's undergone this this change. It's more of a sort of awkward embarrassment, and so he's they're sort of aware that this has happened, but it's not. It doesn't seem like it's outside the realm of possibility. It seems like this is something which happens to other people in the world, potentially. Um, that's never explicit, but the reaction of the characters is such that this doesn't seem like something which is, irre- is that irregular. It's not that surprising. It's just it's, it's more embarrassing and shameful than it is remarkable. And that's very much a thing which comes from new objectivity and Kafka and then goes on to become a, a sort of a very, a very solid trope of magical realism, which makes it very different from fantasy, where... Um, where the supernatural elements are very remarkable and and, and worth, co- worth your comment. Right, so I remember in the article you mentioned this short story by a Russian writer called The Nose. And I think that's from the the late 19th century, is that right? So why, why does it kind of pick up steam at that time? Yeah, good question. The reason why The Nose is important is, is because it's the first short story to really... I guess The, the Nose is important because, like in Metamorphosis, the, the main character loses his nose and it's not remarkable that he lost his nose. People are, people are sort of interested, but he's more, he's more sort of worried about, about not being able to go to a dance or a ball or, or he's worried about how it'll affect his social life. He's not, like, he's not overly bothered by the fact that a nose can just disappear and start walking around. So, so in the story, man wakes up, the protagonist, he loses his nose. It's completely sort of smooth where his nose used to be. And he's walking around looking for his nose and he notices that his nose is now dressed as a police officer. Um, and the nose is impersonating a police officer. So he, he tries to follow his nose around the city, waiting for a good chance to sort of ambush his nose and, and, and try and get it to go back on his face. And he, and he finds his nose in a, in a chapel, dressed as a sort of commissariat. And he says, um, you're, you're, in, you're, you're my nose, you know, you, you belong to me, you need to get back on my face. And his nose says, you, you are wrong, sir, you're mistaken, I am, I am my own being and my own rights, and I belong to no one. And um, then runs away. Um, and then he goes to a newspaper, all kind of put out by this, and tries to tries to take out an ad to explain that he's lost his nose and can anyone get it back. And all the characters are sort of not surprised by this. And that's, that does inform a lot of what happens in magical realism. You're not surprised by the fantasy. It's, it's not remarkable. It's not supernatural. It's just sort of how things are. Yeah, because it's interesting because I've, I know a bit about expressionism at the time because I studied, I'm somebody who writes about art a lot. And a lot of that's meant to be related to industrialization and kind of loneliness, kind of social anxieties about being in modern life. So a lot of the German, and I guess the, the Russian writer, like Kafka and other writers, it's about this kind of anxiety, you know, about appearances and like psychological torment. It's a lot about kind of mental illness. We'd see it now as like schizophrenic almost. But then you're saying that kind of gets taken in Latin America and turned into something that's used as a critique of the government. Is that right? Yeah, precisely. Um... Yeah, so, so Gogol, Nikolai Gogol, who wrote The Nose, is very concerned with the same things that Kafka is concerned with, um, you know, social stigma, um, ostracization, being awkward, not, be, not, be, not being able to go to a party and, and, and make an impression, that kind of thing. Whereas the magical realists are doing something very really different. Um, they're, they're using it to make a point about society. So one of um, Marquez's short stories is called um, A Very Old Man of Enormous Wings. And the short story is about a man who's found in, in the garden of this sort of rural Colombian family. And they're not very well off. And they find a man in the garden and he's got wings. And they're like, oh, 
what's, how did you get here? Are you okay? And he's, he doesn't remember. He's just a sort of homeless man. But because he's got wings, people end up crowding around him, ask, calling him an angel, and sort of almost kind of starting a religion about him. And it's a sort of, I guess the magical realists are making a much more relevant point to their time period. They're, they're talking about how ideas spread and, and why societies are the way they are, uh, in a way which is very appealing to Europeans in the, in the late 20th century, I'd say, um, which is why it gains a lot of momentum. Yes, it's interesting. Yeah, You talk about the difference between magical realism and fantasy, that magical realism is taking something magical or fantastical and using that to either criticize or comment on modern society. So it's often political, whereas fantasy does world building. Fantasy tries to create a whole other reality and immerse the reader. And so you kind of say that because of that difference, that's why magical realism is applauded by the Academy and fantasy is still shunned by it. Yeah. Is that right? That's essentially it, yeah. So fantasy doesn't have this political edge to it. It doesn't, the genre doesn't grow up in a way that fantasy is being used to, to, to critique authoritarian or oppressive governments. Instead, it's, it's really in a sort of older tradition of, of the epic, of kind of Christian, Christian Roman mythology, um, older than that in, in Tolkien's case. So Tolkien is, for example, is harkening back to uh, Beowulf to a sort of pre-Roman society, which is on the cusp of converting to Christianity, and, and he uses a bunch of Christian, Christian mythology mixed with um, Norse mythology. And so you do have this sort of offshoot of magical realism called fabulism, um, which is Talo Calvino um, wrote in, and it's essentially exploring kind of what magical realists are doing, but they're doing it with fables, they're doing it with kind of sort of Grimm's fairy tales. So Angela Carter is also called a fabulist because of this. And it's really kind of in the middle of the spectrum between magical realism and fantasy. I think fantasy is much more concerned with exploring myth, exploring archetypes, exploring aesthetics, and um, in sort of later 20th century with sort of world building for its own sake as a kind of artistic intellectual project, um, which isn't really political. It's not really, uh, it's not really utilitarian. It's not being used to kind of critique society in any way. It's just seen as its own sort of pursuit. And that's why they're different. Yeah, I mean, it's also interesting because, of course, like before maybe the 19th century, almost all literature could be considered fantasy slash magical realist because, you know, like King Arthur's sort of set in, in Britain, right? And there's fairies and monsters and dragons. Um, in Beowulf, there's monsters and dragons, but no one goes and says that these ancient texts are magical realist because people obviously believe that uh, magical beings exist. You know, even in the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, there are gods interfering with the, the real world. So is it the case that, let's say, it's only after industrialization that everyone lives in modern societies that don't really believe in gods and magical beings anymore? So fantasy and magical realism, they're two different ways of trying to bring magic back into reality. And it's quite hard, but it's hard to do. So there are these different approaches. Maybe science fiction is kind of another one, but is that an accurate way of thinking about it, do you think? Uh, it doesn't really make much sense to talk about genres before the invention of the printing press. There, there weren't really genres because you just didn't have enough people writing and, and reading. You can talk about fantastical elements in terms of whether they people believed them. I think for the most part they they were inherently political because all literature was political before the invention of the printing press. Um, you didn't have literature as entertainment really. Um, you had it commissioned by um, a, a sitting ruler or a monarch, etc. 
to kind of prom either promote themselves or promote something within their sort of realm. Um, and so it was, you could never really separate it from Baltics. Like, the, you know, the Song of Roland's a good example of that. At the same time, you do have, you do have sort of folk tales like Beowulf, which, which survived just through oral tradition, through people telling them in taverns and passing them down and singing songs about them. They have fantastical elements because they're good stories, because they're aesthetic. And, and you know, you could say that they're not political necessarily. Um, but it's, it's very hard to separate those things out, I think. Yeah, so like, for example, think of Shakespeare. Like in Shakespeare, there's witches and fairies. And I guess people at the time, when they hear a story about that, they, they sort of don't really question it. They're like, oh yeah, I guess witches could exist. Or they're like, well, it's a story, so who cares? So even like Dante. So in Dante, he goes to heaven and hell and purgatory. And that's taken, I guess at the time, it's taken as a real thing that could happen. So when do we go, when does it go from that to being like, aha, this is a, a genre that's called magical realism, called fantasy? Like why, when and why does that change happen, do you think? Well, like I say, it happens at the printing press because you just have that many more works being produced. The point about Dante is interesting because is, is Dante doing world building? In a way he is, yeah. Um, he's, he's, taking, he's taking what's implied in the Bible and creating the, um, all the circles from hell and he has um, different rules that apply to the different circles. I think the, the, the last circle is cold. Um, and it's, it's, I think it's reserved for treachery, isn't it? Uh, from what I remember. It's, it, it's inspired by Virgil. Virgil. It gets a lot of it from Virgil, who is in the story. Yeah, it's world building, but it's not world building that we kind of recognise today in the same way. You know, I mean, he himself is in the book. Um, sorry, the book, the poem. Which is very, obviously, very unusual. Uh, not something you would do nowadays. The, the reason why that... I mean, Milton is also doing this. Milton is also creating a, his own sort of take on hell and heaven and... and um, uh, Christian Christian mythology, and that world building really doesn't happen until Tolkien, to be honest. So the, the the modern form that we have, because you didn't, it wasn't seen as intellectually rewarding. You, you didn't have people creating their own languages. You didn't have people creating their own uh, economies and and mythologies that, like Lovecraft tried to do. I I think the reason is because it's a very sort of what Tolkien did was very unique and was very different than what I think everybody else had tried to do before. No one really created their own languages out of a habit there are, there are a bunch of hobbyists in the sort of Colang community which do that um Tolkien's still i'd say the most successful um you could argue dothraki etc i forget the guy who created that but um but that does sort of spark a, like its own intellectual movement which informs basically all the all of the fantasy genre um and science fiction to a huge degree i would say but um uh yeah so in a way you could claim that magical realism is older um, is is sort of truer form to to the kind of supernatural elements we see in Shakespeare, because yeah, you're right. Like the, the characters in Shakespeare don't find it remarkable that there are witches. They don't. They don't. They're big. You know. They don't sort of run around exclaiming that witches have been discovered, and it's a. It doesn't become a big plot point. It's just sort of accepted. So in a way, magical realism is kind of truer to to sort of ancient literature and Shakespearean literature. Yeah, because to me it feels like, yeah, up, you mentioned Milton, it feels like up until Milton, so like the 17th century, you still got people writing about demons and magic and all these things, and it's not treated as a separate genre. So, and then it feels like in the 18th, 19th century, you have a lot of, you know, like, well, Pride and Prejudice and um, Charles Dickens and stories about modern life, which people obviously like, but then it kind of feels like after that, you get a big resurgence in people who want to read stuff about magical things and that comes in the form of fantasy 
and magical realism. I guess at that point, people just have a scientific mindset where they don't see magic as being real. So you have to disguise it somehow, either by as a political critique or inventing a whole world separate from reality. Do you agree with that? Um, yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, you've you've written about the sort of point where people stop believing in magic and how the beliefs in magic sort of change over time, right? I mean, do you sort of... Could you like pinpoint up a, a moment where people are more willing to believe in those kind of stories, do you think? Yeah, I think, it, I think it has to be industrialization. It's kind of the industrial revolution when everyone's living in cities, working in factories. Because in the, in the, I feel like the 19th century, it's an age where like science is, it, like characterizes everything. People, before that, it feels like science is like a sort of a small thing. And then after, the, after industrialization, science characterizes all of modern society. You have universities and professors doing everything. And so it's the, the idea that like God and religion becomes this very small thing compared to what it was before. It is interesting, actually, because you can never separate out people's belief in, in, in gods, etc. from from fantastical creatures. Um, they're very much one of the same, like, you know, Dante and, and Milton were writing about things which they thought of as real, I think. Um, it was just their conception of it and their, their belief in it. But, they, you know, they, they were popular because people believed in them, whereas that's not necessarily true of fantasy at the moment. Um, you know, like, no one really believes that elves and dwarves were, were walking the earth. Yeah, so um, basically you, you say that there's a, in a way there's a good reason why magical realism is seen as important literature and fantasy is just seen as cheap entertainment by the Academy. <laughs> Maybe you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, I think it's, it's unfair to call it cheap entertainment, but it is, it's definitely... I think there's a distinction to be made. Like, it, it is entertainment in a way. They do have a point. Um, like world building and creating your own languages and your own mythology, etc. is is, you know, I mean, it's entertaining, but I think some people also find, you know, political political critiques entertaining. Like, it's, it is entertainment in both cases. It's just that they're, they're two intellectual traditions, and, and one is newer than the other. Like, fantasy is... World-building is its own intellectual thing. I mean, there, there are plenty of people who create their own languages, and they don't do anything with it. They don't sort of create a, a magical world around it, or they need to explain it through a story. They just have it as its own intellectual pursuit, and that's, that's still very valid. But the point of the article really is to say that that's... Um, that is a, a new narrative technique which hasn't actually been recognised by the Academy in, in any form. Um, so when I say it hasn't been recognised, I mean it doesn't get awards. Um, so there's like the Nebula Awards, there are awards which are, which are for science fiction and world building. Yeah, the Hugo Awards, yeah. But they're, they're very much outside what's considered literary fiction. Um, for people who are unfamiliar, literary fiction is um, essentially a genre in and of itself. You, by literary fiction, you technically mean sort of Shakespeare, literary works, works which you would study in, in sort of English lit classes and would win the Booker Prize and Nobel Prizes. They're considered literature. They, they, they make up the canon. So Kafka is very much literary fiction. Um, and, so, and, and because he's inspiring magical realists, the magical realists are considered literary fiction. Like Gabriel Garcia Marquez won a Nobel Prize, um, as did a bunch of the other magical realists. Um, Tolkien didn't. No, no, Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, hasn't. No one who's been engaged in the in the the art of world building has ever won one. I mean, it's you could say it's kind of like a petty fight, really, to be like complain that your favorite authors haven't got Nobel prizes, and you know, can't they be recognised through the, the Nebula Awards and other sort of fan conventions and things? Um, I I don't think so because really, what that does is it, it it draws a line in the sand and says this isn't really literature. This isn't what we're concerned about. This isn't engaging with the human experience on the same level. Um, so we're not going to recognise it, and it's not going to. 
be taught in schools. Um, I, I think that's a bit of a mistake, really. I think. Yeah, I mean, isn't it? Isn't sorry. I was gonna just say, isn't it kind of stupid of them in a way? Because you know, like, like if you talk to people about Gandalf or Darth Vader or um, even now, like Khaleesi and Game of Thrones, it's like people all around the world know about those stories, but no, very few people have heard of or really study Gabriela Garcia Marquez. So aren't they kind of shooting themselves in the foot in a way by ignoring all of it? Well, I guess the, the Nobel Prize Committee would say that it's not seeking popularity with its, with its choices and through its work. I mean, if anything, they would say that they choose works which are less well-known and promote them through, through, the, through awarding them rather than doing it the other way around, which I think is fair and valid. But really, the reason why they're missing out, I think, is because what, what, what you're doing when you try and world build is you're, you never start from, like, you rarely start from scratch, I'd say. I, I think probably the only people who, who do start from scratch is probably people like Paul Stewart and Chris Riddle with um, The Edge Chronicles and things like that. Aside from that, you're, you're, you're almost always building on a kind of existing mythology. So Lord of the Rings is in Norse Christian mythology. Um, you know, there's been a lot of examples of Greek and Roman um, mythology becoming popular. Um, Game of Thrones, I think, has a bunch of Zoroastrian mythology from the Red God, etc. What else? Um, I mean, there's countless examples, really, once you get into it. But so, and so they tend to do stuff like create languages and create, create new pantheons, um, which is what Lovecraft was doing. Um, that's really trying to explore the extent to which you can, you can experiment with religious belief and build up emotional sentiment around belief systems, which have been sort of created quite quickly. And I think that's why you tend to have very long novels advancing science fiction, which is another thing the Academy doesn't like. Um, but, you, but I mean, obviously, mythology and religions were built, were really constructed by thousands of people over time, iteratively. And so it makes sense that you'd have a kind of miniature form of it happening in, in literature with, with multiple participants. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking that, um, for example, like, you know, you could see an argument why they shouldn't give the Nobel Prize to, to Stan Lee for writing comic books. But you think like, well, they give the Nobel Prize to, to Bob Dylan for writing songs. So, but they're unwilling to give it to fantasy authors. So it seems like a few just say that all, all this literature is not real storytelling. We're going to decide that even though they're really obscure writers and books compared to books which are actually selling tens or hundreds of millions of copies. Isn't that like the wrong approach in a way? Yeah, yeah. So the Bob Dylan Award's interesting because it's in a way saying that, you know, Bob Dylan's an amazing lyricist, but then do you, if you're opening up the, the all of songwriting to, to, to the to the committee and saying that all of this can be considered literature, then you've already expanded, you've already expanded your, your definition of what literature could be to, you know, inc include anything um, within the songwriting domain. I mean, I, I think people like Leonard Cohen, for example, are possibly better, more worthy of Nobel Prize than Bob Dylan. Although I do, you know, I love Dylan. I wouldn't sort of slag him off or anything. But um, um, Bowie, you could probably, you could maybe struggle to argue. Um, I think I think that's that's kind of goes to the heart of what their project is. They see it as political. So Dylan is famously associated with um, the civil rights movement, no, but by no choice of his own. He, he was very against it, and, and not against sorry, he wasn't against the civil rights movement, but he was against his his songs being associated with with a movement of anything. He kind of wanted to be left alone and and write his music and not really have to sort of go to rallies, etc., and sort of stand in front of a crowd and and give a speech on anything. He, he just kind of wanted to make some songs. Um, I think. And um, yeah, their sort of attempt to award literature is the same. They're, they're awarding it for political, political brownie points, I think, um, which sort of shows that they've run out of steam. They, 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 they're no longer concerned with 
aesthetics and writing, and it's kind of where the literary genre has has sort of ended up is is being over considered politics. And magical realism has done a lot of a lot to push it in that direction. I think. Yeah, you you hear you hear that noble committee. You, you finished. You, you're wasting your time. We need to make a new noble committee. I mean, the solution is to sort of do other noble, the Nebula Awards, etc. Do and, and is to try other oh, Philip K. Dick Award and, and try and create your award and do something better. But um, I mean, the, the reason I'm sort of, you know, hang up on it is because it's a very like, storied institution which shouldn't be politicised to the extent that it has been, and you know, it should sort of retain itself and and, and, and try and make itself more relevant and um, award good literature. I mean, the Man Booker Prize. The Man Booker Prize actually seems to sl- slant itself more towards historical fiction nowadays, um, which is interesting because it's there's a debate as to whether historical fiction is world building. I think it is because um, all world, almost all world building is kind of drawing from, or at least all good world building is drawing from from history and from from sort of ancient societies and, and sort of you've always got something to work with in fantasy, which is based in reality. I think, whereas historical fiction is the other way around. You're, you're, you're starting with something which very much did exist and building, putting your own take on it, putting your own spin, which does require a bit of, a bit of creativity and a bit of, um, a bit of your own depiction. So they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they still are on a spectrum, I think. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing I wanted to mention is that you could talk about fantasy being more popular, but then like now if you expanded magical realism to include uh, more authors, Salman Rushdie is usually called magical realist. Um, and I think you can easily describe people like Chinese authors like Mo Yan, who won the Nobel Prize, I think, 2012, Lu Xun. So he writes about uh, you know, these Republic of Wine, where there's these demon summoning ceremonies. Um, and one of his books where the, the main character gets reincarnated into different farm animals and killed over and over again. There's this Polish writer who won the Nobel Prize, I think, last year, uh, where, you know, it's all of Polish history, except angels are coming to her her hometown and and doing things. So in a, in a way, mag- magical realism seems to have incorporated loads of genres outside of the West. You know, it seems in a way like more popular in other countries like Pakistan, China, um, you know, Eastern Europe, South America. Uh, do you have any, do you have a feeling of why that is? Why it sort of actually seems more, more popular in other cultures? So I think that's, that's one of the objectives of the, the committees and why magical realism was, was popular in the first place. It's, it's a kind of, it's an attempt to celebrate works of other cultures, I think. And it was, it was seen as a way of kind of decolonizing the, the canon and, and the sort of um, literary world, really. Um, you know, the, the fact that you can sort of celebrate a group of Latin American authors um, was seen as a kind of politically positive thing. Um, I mean, you know, it's a thing. Well, we've got this canon, which is made up of, you know, if you're of this mindset, you know, dead right Europeans. And here are these people who are expanding on it and creating their own genre and, and, and creating good literature, and we should be rewarding that. Um, and um, obviously there are fantasy authors who um, are from different cultures and backgrounds, etc. But um, uh, I mean, a lot of them are sort of are still white and European of descent. So I think there's, there's an element of that, for sure. The, the, I mean, the historical fiction point is interesting because it is sort of smuggling a lot of magical realism, uh, as you say. Um, the Terror uh, by Dan Simmons, I think, is, is the example I mentioned in the article because he is using historical fiction to kind of portray a fantasy story. It's about the, um, uh, the, the, the Northwest Passage. It's, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's worth reading about, um, even in its own right. You don't even, it's, it's fascinating enough even without a novel, but um, Dan Simmons does a really good job of kind of going into the cannibalism. 
But the interesting thing is that he's kind of introducing fantasy and supernatural elements without making it a fancy or science fiction novel. Um, so it's kind of implied that a lot of what a lot of what you're you're reading the supernatural elements that you're reading in the book are explained through things like lead poisoning or just madness from the crew members, which um, I've got mixed feelings about because in a way it's 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 very positive that historical fiction's kind of got a pass because it's seen as, as good literary fiction, so it's allowed to introduce fancy elements. Um, but in a way, it's also like, you need to sort of hide them and explain them through unreliable narration. You kind of need to be a bit embarrassed by them. You can't overtly do fancy. It needs to be sort of hidden, suggestive fantasy. Because you were saying this about the director, Robert Eggers. So he, he directed the film The Witch and The Lighthouse, which has a lot of fancy elements in it. So the, the, But The Witch on all the... All the magical stuff can be explained through hallucinations or the effects of alcohol. And yeah, it feels like if it's explainable by madness or some psychosis, everyone's meant to clap and applaud. But um, if there's actually some magic elements that exist, everyone like boos and says it's fancy and, you know, it won't win any awards. Yeah. And this is, it's, you know, this is also interesting for the Terror TV show because the first TV show, it's very much the same as the book. Like you, it's all explainable through madness and lead poisoning. Whereas the second season, it's just overtly, there's overt demons and there's no, there's no kind of logical explanation of why there's demons. You just have to, you just led to the conclusion that they actually are there and exist. And, and people really turned on it, I think, um, by comparison. Yeah, you should watch the, watch the Lighthouse if you haven't seen it yet. I was going to say, like, the, the Lighthouse didn't actually win that many, wasn't really recognised in my view, even though it's like fantastic and um, it's doing all the right things. But um, yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to talk about things in terms of like them being recognised because obviously things can be very popular and not win awards and, and things don't win awards for all kinds of reasons. There could have been a better thing that year. But um, yeah, it is noticeable. Um, I, I think um, I've talked about this before in other articles, but historical, historical fiction is a kind of, could be a kind of bridge between all the sort of like disillusioned, sort of segregated genres. So historical fiction can sort of, has a past to bring in fancy elements. It can also bring in world building to a degree um, and magical realism. And it, you can create your own languages, um, I think. I'm trying to think of an example where someone sort of rekindled the language through historical fiction, but I'm sure there is one. Um, so you can kind of do all this in historical fiction and sort of smuggle it through committees and people will think it's amazing, even though you're kind of doing the same thing that you would have been doing in fantasy. And, you know, the distinction is kind of arbitrary. But that's true of, you know, many works of fiction, I think. Yeah, so you say this at the end of the article. You basically think that there's a great potential for new authors to kind of bridge the gap. You think more people should try to basically combine fantasy and magical realism and because it, it hasn't really been done. Uh, you, you can kind of see it a bit with science fiction. So Katsuo Shiguro writing uh, Clara and the Sun, uh, Ian McEwan writing Machines Like Me. So this is kind of happening a little bit with science fiction and you think it would be a great idea for this to happen in, in fantasy. Yeah, so there has been a bit of a bridging of the gap. Um, I mean, I think, I, I think the reason literary authors are more concerned about, with science fiction is because we're just, we're of the age where Technology is incredibly relevant for the time, and if you're going to try and make a comment about society and and um, contemporary life, you're sort of you know beating around the bush if you're not talking about technology and the impacts that can have on life. So it seems sort of churlish to kind of segregate science fiction at this point. But fantasy doesn't have the same thing. You're 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 talking, you're writing about an imagined past rather than an imagined future. So fantasy doesn't doesn't have the same kind of gravitas that you know Ian McEwan writing about AI does. Um, so you need to sm you need to smuggle it in through historical fiction, I think, in order to keep it relevant. Um, not that anyone needs to do that; um, they can do what they want. But that would be a good way of getting getting the committee to recognise it and, and to sort of think, actually, yeah, world building is a legitimate aesthetic achievement, um, and it should be awarded.
which um, I mean the reason that's a good thing is because you know fancy fancy can sort of make all the money in the world, but it's worth lining up the canon with with entertainment and unpopular fiction and sort of weeding out what's entertaining but also literary because um, when you find that then it's you know worth rewarding I think yeah I, I think it's worth actually trying to add to literary canon and trying to um, add to a tradition just because you, you, it's going to be more original you're going to be more innovative with storytelling so yeah I think we actually suggested that uh, you know a new writer could write a sort of magical realist uh, fantasy novel set in the colonial period and uh, disguise it all through, you know, mystic indigenous beliefs and they'd, they'd win all the Nobel Prizes and be a huge bestseller. So if anybody's listening, you, any any aspiring authors, you know, that's that's the route to success. Yeah, we, we, we've set it up perfectly, really. Uh, plugs book. <laughs> yeah. If only someone could write it, yeah. Your, 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 your stitch list should back together. That concludes our first Rough Estimate podcast. If you enjoy the content, find our articles on roughestimate.org and subscribe to our channel. Our second podcast will be out soon after this week. Thank you for listening and goodbye.